Welcome to my podcast, Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? With my guests, we are discussing health issues, questions you may have about your health, especially around reproductive health, and debunking some of the myths around our health. And today, it's a great pleasure to speak to Mr. Vikram Talika, a clinician's perspective on current menopause treatment. So this podcast with Vikram is the third in a row of podcasts around menopause, and it's great to have heard from three different clinicians and their views. And they're not actually that much different than I thought they were going to be. So a little bit about Vikram. Vikram is an associate specialist at the Reproductive Medicine Unit at University College Hospital in London, and he's honorary associate professor at University College London. You'll have to excuse me. I've been traveling a lot and it's very early in the morning here and I've not had much sleep. So I've got, I've got a bit of a croaky voice today. Vikram graduated in medicine in India in 2003 and completed postgraduate degree in obstetrics and gynecology in 2007. And he was awarded the FRCOG in 2022 and completed a PhD degree at St. George's University of London in 2016. He cares for women and couples who have difficulty conceiving and his clinical interests include reproductive endocrinology, premature ovarian failure, polycystic ovary syndrome, recurrent miscarriage, menopause and male factor subfertility, all topics that are very close to my heart. He is a certified menopause specialist by the British Menopause Society. He has published widely in the area of reproductive medicine, some with me. His research focuses around events at the embryo-maternal interface in the early pregnancy, ovarian response to, to stimulation in various endocrine conditions and menopause. And he is co-founder of the Menopause Clinic in London in Harley Street, along with Professor Isaac Maniondo, who we spoke to in the last podcast. So welcome, Vikram. I wanted to start by talking about your career. I always love to hear why people chose a particular topic and why you decided to work in reproductive medicine. Good morning and thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Prof. Um, We go a long way back, actually now almost 10 years, I think, since I joined UCLH uh, and you've been a sort of senior colleague who welcomed me to UCL. Uh, but it's an honor to be speaking today. Um, I My father was a gynecologist, so a kind of introduction to medicine happened very early in my life. Um, and I was always fascinated by medicine, what he did. He was a surgeon. Uh, and so therefore, um, going to see what he did when I kind of grew up a little bit was always interesting. Um, and then, of course, when I did MBBS, it was, uh, again, a bit of a natural fascination to gynecology, obstetrics, went into women's health. Um, then got a bit taste of research, something I missed when I was back in Goa. Uh, and so I came to UK really to kind of do clinical research alongside clinical medicine. Um, and then got again interested in fertility, what happens with women's hormones, reproendocrinology. And then doing, during that process, realized that there is very little focus on what happens after childbirth. There's a lot going on around the reproductive years. But once a woman gets to 40s and 50s, often symptoms, often the clinical changes that happen in the body were not being addressed or talked about. And that's how I got into post-reproductive medicine. And here I am, uh, mainly focused on that area now. Thank you. Yes, it is a hot topic, especially in the UK. And you've been doing absolutely brilliant work, giving lots of lectures and trying to help educate everybody about menopause. And so we, we'll discuss this today. And, and I'm going to ask you very similar questions that I asked Susan and Isaac. And I think they're all a little bit controversial, actually. I thought the first question was asking everyone how they define menopause and your view on the words perimenopause and postmenopause. It's actually been a little bit more controversial than I thought. So I'd like to hear what you think about those definitions. So menopause is a transition. Although we say menopause is when somebody has stopped their periods for 12 months, um, that's just one point in time. That is to define a, a particular time point so that you can kind of devise your research or devise your clinical management accordingly. 
But although we say it's one time point of 12 months of not having periods, the changes have started way before. And of course, the changes will continue after that time point. So perimenopause for me is once the periods start changing or symptoms appear. And when I say symptoms, it's the symptoms of lack of estrogen and progesterone. And those will start happening perhaps months or years before that final time point of having stopped periods. So you have the perimenopause, the symptoms and period changes. You have the menopause, one time point. Anywhere from that time point of one year since the last period until end of life is postmenopause. May it be one year, 10 years, 20, 30, 40 years of a woman's life. But that entire phase from that point on till the end of life will be postmenopause. So thank you, Vikram, for that definition. I hope that uh, that wasn't masked too much by next door starting some early gardening. Um, so I'm going to ask you a really controversial question now. And something that we've debated, and um, I, I debated this with Isaac in our institute, and I asked him the same question, and he didn't give me quite the answer that we discussed before. So do you think the menopause is a disease or a disorder? No, the answer to that is no. It's a phase of life where hormones change. It is not a disorder. It is not a disease. Yes, some women can have certain symptoms due to changes in hormones and there are effective strategies to improve quality of life, but it's not a disorder. What, what really worries me with this narrative is I think we're doing women a big injustice by letting people, well, suggesting to people that women are going to have this disease or disorder happen to them and in the middle of their life and I think it's negative for them in the workplace I think it's negative for them socially by really medicalizing it because some women don't have huge issues with the transition we're not gaslighting we're not ignoring those that do have huge issues and, and we'll come on to that in a moment um, so let's let's talk about age because uh, what happens is um, <clears throat> we have this this number in our head that women go through menopause at age 51. But of course, we know that this can happen at, at any age and can go way beyond 51. So what's your view about the the natural age that periods could stop or that the perimenopause symptoms could start? It's such a big variation, as you rightly pointed out. So a number of factors determine when a woman will go through her menopause, whether it's the maternal age, her genes, her ethnicity, uh, the socioeconomic status, her nutritional status, her background, medical or gynecological conditions she's experienced, the treatment she's had for them. Everything impacts one's ovarian reserve, ovarian hormones. And so it's a wide variation when women will naturally experience their menopause. So we often talk about, say, Caucasian population, which has been well studied, the average age being 50-51. If you look at Southeast Asian women, average age is 46 and a half, five years earlier. Afro-Caribbean population, perhaps a year or two earlier. Again, similarly, Asian, uh, about 48-49. And so it's not uh, in, in sort of blueprint, it's not one particular number you're looking at. You may start experiencing that your ovaries are winding up five years, ten years before you stop your periods. So anywhere in the fourth decade, you might be starting to experience the drop in hormones. Whether you have symptoms, whether you do something for it will depend on how prominent they are or whether how what your lifestyle is, what your expectation from life is. But that process may start way before that number of 50. So anywhere between, I would say, 45 to 55 is a broad range of natural menopause. And a few years before that would be the perimenopause. That, that's really so clear. I, I've seen many women on social media who are 47, 48 and said, oh, I've gone through the early menopause. And I think it's so important we remind everyone that this age of 50-51 for Caucasian population is is really an average. And 45 to 55, as you said, is, is normal. But thank you for explaining about different uh, cultural backgrounds and how this, even the average age, really, really varies. Now, a topic that is, again, and I think all of these are controversial, um, symptoms. So, um, 
I did a survey a few years ago. Now you were involved with some of this work. And we listed 52 potential. We didn't say they were menopause symptoms, but where um, symptoms that we'd heard women say that they felt they were menopausal. And that list has been very controversial. Um, but I wanted to hear what you thought. What do you, what do you, what do you think are the main menopause symptoms that women need to know about before, before definitely before they get to this life stage? So I can answer that in two ways, as a scientist and as a doctor in the clinic. Um, as a scientist, I think we haven't done justice to really delineating what true menopausal symptoms are, other than the ones which have been classically noted. So things like hot flushes, night sweats, sleep difficulties, vaginal dryness, uh, changes to your mood, uh, drop in libido, uh, sometimes triggering of migraines, headaches, the changes to your joint aches and pains and muscle pains. These are typically classically known as the uh, classical symptoms of menopause. And we know this because there have been so many observational studies over the years, both in young women who have sudden lack of estrogen and also in women above 50. We more or less know these are typically the, the ones that will feature if someone were to present them with a survey about what symptoms you have. But there are more and more symptoms which have been added to this list of classical symptoms over the last decade, one would say. So it's gone from, say, 20 to 30 to 40 to now 50. Different uh, uh, surveys and different quality of life questionnaires come up with even more uh, list of symptoms added every time. What we don't know, as a scientist, I would say, is how much of these symptoms are down to just lack of hormones? What's the contribution of the lack of estrogen, progesterone, could be testosterone for some women? What is the actual contribution of lack of hormones? Or is it the lifestyle? Is it the multiple factors? It is some other medical changes that happen at the time that is concurrently causing this and they are being wrongly attributed to menopause. That distinction we haven't achieved yet. So there's much better need for further observational studies, mass studies with questionnaires in women, and then alongside looking at their hormones to really say these symptoms is menopausal or not. Now, once that has been established, it will be clearer for us to do future research or advise women accordingly. Now, as a clinician, as a doctor, though, I see something slightly different. So when women come with atypical symptoms and you give somebody HRT, a proportion of them won't have a change. And you say these vague symptoms, maybe fatigue, uh, maybe sometimes uh, not being happy with life, such kind of symptoms may not respond to HRT. And you say, I've given you HRT, you're getting good levels in the blood. This is not hormonal. So we stop HRT or the women come off HRT, focus on other lifestyle or other factors. But a proportion of women, when you give HRT in the clinic, they feel these symptoms disappear. Now, is it only a placebo effect? Or is it actually that there's a component uh, or some subtype of women where the estrogen progesterone top does impact their uh, uh, the fatigue levels, does impact the nonspecific symptom? That's the difficulty in the clinic, is that there is a group of women who do respond to hormones, and maybe hormones contribute to these additional symptoms for some women. What we need is much more robust clinical and scientific research. I, I totally agree. As, as a scientist, the the problem with an observational study is that if you in, if interviewed or observed a group of middle-aged women, they could be, we, we can easily muddle just normal aging issues that are nothing to do with their hormones and their menopause with actually menopause. So there are some controversies there, such as weight gain, um, which I myself in my book had put was a menopausal symptom, and I've seen others in the past. But I believe the data is that if you look at men of the same age, they put on the same amount of weight. So is the menopause weight gain due to just aging, or is it due to hormones? So what do you think about something like weight gain? Again, I don't think it's purely just the menopause. Uh, the midlife is when everything slows down. The metabolism slows down. Your insulin is working less uh, effectively. Yes, there is a drop in estrogen, testosterone, but that's just one component. Uh, uh, because if HRT or hormones were the only problem, 
then giving somebody HRT should have caused weight loss. That doesn't happen. In fact, a number of women get fluid retention. Their weight goes up initially on HRT and eventually they come back to their baseline weight. For others, yes, there is weight loss with HRT, but that's often because they feel more motivated to do exercise. They feel better. There's no doubt that estrogen helps metabolism and there's some indication that it may prevent diabetes for those with POI early menopause. But the issue is that's not the single component on its own. Like many other changes which are happening in your body as you come to 40s, 50s, 60s, it is one piece of equation which cannot be blamed single-handedly as a cause for weight gain. It's, it's a part of equation which has many other factors which need to be corrected uh, and, and not just the menopause alone. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that uh, the other issue, um, a symptom is uh, some of the psychological issues. I think we've got some women who are entering some issues around depression, anxiety, etc., which is not related to the menopause. And as, as you said, the worry is that we think that we're going to come on to HRT in a minute. Um, we think that it's all to do with the menopause. Everything that happens to a woman in midlife we're blaming nowadays on the menopause, which I think is doing women a huge injustice and the misinformation about menopause, the huge injustice, because we could also be masking underlying conditions that are happening for another reason and not to do with the menopause. And as you say, in, in the clinic, treating them with HRT, if it doesn't work, then you know we need, we need to look for the other reasons why this is happening. Do you, th do you think that's an issue with the psychological symptoms as well? Yes. Um, so again, we are better now at, at recognizing somebody going through a menopausal transition. And of course, if it's a difficult menopausal transition, they are symptomatic, their moods start fluctuating in an acute fashion as they are going through the perimenopause, have stopped their periods. There is no doubt that it's one of the symptoms of menopause. You often offer HRT to such a woman and she will be transformed. She will feel much more positive. She feels that her motivation, her uh, will to live comes back. Um, and so HRT, no doubt, will work for some women where the drop in symptoms is just associated typically with the fluctuation or the lack of hormone. But again, that cannot be generalized. There are a lot of other women who at this time, as you rightly said, uh, there are so many things going on in their lives regarding children, their parents, their extended family, friends, job, financial worries. And they may think, oh, am I going through menopause and that's causing this? Often they come, they start HRT, and then they realize it's done very little to actually improve my mood. And then you go back to the drawing board, you look at the stressors, you may sometimes even consider alternative medications such as antidepressants, and that works just like it would for somebody else who is taking it without menopause. So there are both pictures. You have women who will be definitely affected by hormones, and it's great that they have an option of HRT today, which can really transform their life. But it doesn't mean that applies to everyone. There will be women who are menopause will not be the only reason or the main reason why they feel low and, and other options are affecting uh, what they are doing in their day-to-day -day life or considering non-hormonal uh, therapies will be much better. That That is crystal clear, Vikram. And I, I think we've got to treat women as individuals. We've got to realize that not all of these symptoms are going to be cured with HRT. I keep trying to call it MHT. Um, I'm not a big fan of the replacement, uh, but we're we're struggling with that one in the UK. Um, so, you know, we've just got to realise that yes, menopause isn't going to be the cause of everything or perimenopause. For the woman's best interest, sometimes we need to dig deeper and get to the bottom of what is causing these symptoms and help her. And it's in her best interest, but we've got all this controversy about using hormone therapy. That we'll, we'll park that for a few more minutes and come back to in a moment. Now, um, Clear Blue have recently advertised a menopause test and the guidelines from the British Menopause Society and others is that we don't do a menopause test, certainly not in women over 45, because the hormones fluctuate too much from day to day. We can get a lot of false uh, negatives. So women who are in perimenopause that day, their hormone levels are normal. Um, but the clear blue test suggests taking some background information and then doing a few of the, the hormone tests. So what, what do you think about 
a hormone test. And, and women, we, we, we all want to be tested for things now. There's this test, that test, there's direct to consumer tests that we can order at home. We're being bombarded by, oh, be tested for this, that, and the other. And so women say, yes, I want the hormone test. I've heard so many women say this. So what would you say to, for example, a 48-year-old woman with some perimenopausal symptoms who comes to you and says, I want the menopause test? And what do you think about the clear blue test? So I, I personally haven't used the clear blue test. I think it's not yet available in the UK, or it may be. Um, and I don't have any patients who've used it yet. Um, I'm a very non-interventionist when it comes to blood tests or any urine tests. And so I would not recommend anybody do testing, either their bloods or their urine, for knowing where they are in the menopause. As you rightly said, hormones fluctuate widely. And you will not get an accurate assessment based just on the levels of hormones. What matters is how you feel and your symptoms. So even if your hormones were quite low or high, but you're not feeling great and they're typical menopausal symptoms, your management treatment options would not differ. So there's no point in testing. The only point in testing, and that too through the standard established blood test, would be in younger women below 40 or in some women below 45 when you think of alternative diagnosis. But I do not support any home testing or any commercial kits for menopause right now. Unless I'm provided with some extraordinary evidence in future, I will not uh, recommend it to any of my patients. Thank you again, crystal clear. So let's park the menopause test, everyone. I think I think everyone said the same thing. So it, you know, don't don't stress about this. Don't waste your money. Uh, let's park it. So before we go on to hormone therapy, you've mentioned already a little bit about lifestyle. So how important do you think it is for lifestyle and menopause symptoms? Well, this should come from you. You're the best advocate for this in terms of uh, physical activity, exercise, cold swimming, so for those of you who don't know, we probably know if you followed uh, uh, Prof anyway, uh, cold swimming, uh, that's the, the mantra for, uh, for the next generation. Uh, but, but again, keeping that aside, I think lifestyle is key, whether it's menopause or it is just long-term health midlife. Uh, a lot of us have even ourselves done mistakes in the past. I wish I had all the knowledge I have now in my 20s, 30s, 40s, so I could have eaten much better, I could have exercised more, I would have paid attention to my sleep patterns and, and stress levels, but it's never too late. So this message should really go very early in their 20s, 30s to women, is that throughout your life, you will have to follow four things. Stress reduction, good sleep, diet, eat healthy, and then exercise or physical activity. There's nothing that can beat it. When you get to 40s, 50s, it becomes even more important. So if you haven't had the good changes to your life so far, this is the time to do them. Whether you go on to take hormone replacement because of difficult menopausal transition, whether you choose not to take it and you have a simpler menopause, it's not a substitute for lifestyle. You will still have to have good lifestyle to keep your bone, brain, muscle, heart healthy and live longer. So absolutely crucial. Agreed again. So. Um... Whenever I give a talk now, my one of my last slides is is about exactly what you said. Those four, I call them the four pillars of well being: the uh, mental health, uh, nutrition, sleep, and exercise. And when I when I was writing my book, Your Fertile Years, um, this was my largest chapter. I wrote about thirty five thousand words on well being because, and this my next book's going to be about well being. Um, I just think it's so important and. For you and I, we've been working in the fertility field for for so many years, and what we see—I'm—I I'm, hope I'm not putting words in your mouth—but we see so many couples come to us when they're trying to get pregnant, and we're having the same conversation about their lifestyle. It's so important at that stage to sort out their lifestyle. Then we see them come at menopause, and again, we're saying sort out your lifestyle. And as you said, we need to do this when we're younger. So the work we're doing with schools, we're really trying to make them understand about their well-being because the sooner you start, the better. But as you said, it's never too late. And I think that our, our time when we're trying to get pregnant and our menopause is, is a wake-up call. Okay, now's the time. If you haven't before, 
then really try to look after your health. But all the books I've read, all the papers I've read about things like dementia, cancer, diabetes, um, heart disease, they are all linked to those pillars of well-being. So the sooner we sort them out, I think it's really going to help our healthy aging. And aging can be a wonderful, wonderful thing for sure. Uh, I think post-menopause is a brilliant time for, for many women not all women I understand but for many women so getting this instilled with the younger generation and even for for women's um, menstrual health when they're and their menstrual cycle when they're in their teens if they're eating well sleeping exercising looking after their mental health it will help all of their reproductive life but even beyond that and and their health um, into those issues that affect us when we're older, such as cancer and heart disease and dementia. So, um, yeah, you've heard it from me. You've heard it from Rick Ram. You've heard it from all the other speakers as well. Um, it's never, ever too late. And as you say, um, taking HRT is not going to uh, help our general health if we're not That's looking true. after our general health. Um, Anis has this wonderful an analogy where she talks about having the windows open in your house. So HRT will maybe close one, but if you're not exercising, if you, if you are, that will close another. If you're eating well, that will close another. Um, if you're sleeping well, that will close another. And all of them together will, will help your health. But if you've just, if you've still got some open, um, this is in her book, it, it's a, it's a great uh, way to think about it. We've, we've really got to look after our health, but let's, let's go on to, I'm going to call it hormone therapy for today. Let's talk about hormone therapy. So another, we've got lots of controversies here. Uh, let's go, let's go. So first of all, do you think hormone therapy is a drug? I've heard people say it's not a drug. Yes, hormone therapy is a medication like any other. That's a simple answer. So you've already mentioned some of the situations where you would recommend it. So let, let's just go through those a bit more. When, when would you recommend hormone therapy? So any woman who is perimenopausal or menopausal and is starting to experience symptoms that are bothering her and getting her down, the threshold may vary. Some women may think minimal or mild symptoms don't bother them on a day-to-day -day basis and carry on uh, and feel that it doesn't impact their quality of life. Others may have symptoms that really start impacting them, uh, impairing their quality of life. As soon as you get to that stage uh, and you feel you should be doing something about it and you're, you're kind of addressing it if you want through lifestyle or you would like to have a trial of HRT straight away to see how much it can help, that would be the stage for your symptoms. You can start hormone therapy. Great. So um, let's talk about testosterone. It's a hot topic in the UK at the moment. So I interviewed Susan Davis because she's, in my view, one of the people that have done brilliant research on testosterone. And, and she said this research is ongoing. And I know that there's some research at uh, University College Hospital on testosterone as well. So what's, what's your view about women taking testosterone? Um, so physiologically, again, I'm not as expert as uh, Professor Davis uh, or many others in this field. But from my 10, 15 years of, of doing clinics and reading about it, is that testosterone has a gradual drop uh, once a woman approaches her late 30s, early 40s. So it's kind of going to drop a few percents every year uh, as you go into your 50s, 60s, 70s. That is different to estrogen progesterone, which will have a sharp drop around 45, 50 when menopause happens. So the difference in the two is you have a gradual decline in one hormone, giving the body time to get used to it. And the other one is much more sharper. Uh, also remember that testosterone is produced by two. You have the ovary, you have adrenal. So as the ovarian uh, function will decline, the adrenal keeps producing testosterone, keeps it within a low normal physiological range. Of course, with estrogen, progesterone, you don't see that because ovary is the main source and very little comes from the fat or the subcutaneous tissue. So the effects of testosterone lack as such are, are much less pronounced or much less clinically relevant uh, as, as much as the estrogen, progesterone drop that happens at the time of menopause. 
clinically, uh, if you see a woman going through perimenopause, menopause, you often don't see a lot of symptoms that you can attribute to lack of testosterone. Now, there is a list that is currently being sort of thought about, which is the lack of libido, the brain fog, the mood changes, the clarity of thinking, as well as your energy levels. Now, here I'll answer this in two ways. As a scientist, all the evidence we have, including some uh, work from, from Prof. Susan Davis and, and others in the area, it suggests that testosterone could be useful if somebody has a persistent lack of sexual desire and you've ruled out any other cause and it's associated with the drop in hormones during menopause, you've tried to replace estrogen, it still is there, you give testosterone, it will help. So that's where the indication today of using testosterone. Persistent lack of libido despite having tried other bits uh, to improve it. The bit about uh, the energy, the brain fog, the mood, scientifically so far the research doesn't agree to that because there haven't been good robust randomized trials which we need to really establish is this effect of testosterone, is this placebo, is this some other factor that actually improves the, the result or there's no influence of testosterone on these additional symptoms. That's my scientific answer to it. Is low libido? Yes. Rest? I don't know. If I am to be a clinician, you do find again a subset of women. They come in, they, they are on HRT, you give them testosterone for low libido. They also notice improvement in their energy, in their brain fog, in their mood. Now again, is this placebo of adding extra testosterone? Or actually testosterone may be helping a small subset of menopausal women who do uh, feel that they are sensitive to the lack of testosterone that is happening gradually, it is possible. And that's why you see those women who start testosterone and feel great. How long that will last? Will it last for six months, one year, five years, ten years? How long will you be able to reap those benefits? And do they actually mean that you're also prone to having long-term side effects of testosterone because you're sensitive to it? We don't have answers to those. So clearly speaking, there's a small group where you see additional effects of testosterone. And it's great if women can experience them. But right now, we have to base our clinical practice only on science. It's low libido, persistent, despite HRT. Thank you. That's so clear. And exactly what Susan Davis said. But when I put the clip about um, her talking about testosterone, where she said exactly what you said, um, we got comments on social media such as that she was gaslighting and that uh, she had no idea, even though she's an endocrinologist and a clinician, um, she had no idea. Um, so I think we, we obviously have to treat women as individuals. We do need more studies. But um, do you feel that taking hormone therapy, including testosterone, is essential for everybody? I mean, you've sort of alluded already that that's not the case, but let's just clarify this. Do you think every woman no. is going to benefit from taking hormone therapy, including testosterone? No. So like any other medicine, I treat HRT as benefits versus risk uh, decision-making treatment. Uh, so there are many women who will benefit from HRT. They should not be denied HRT. It's the most effective treatment if you have difficult menopause symptoms. It is really going to improve your quality of life. Women's lives have been transformed by HRT, some even with testosterone. But we need to understand it better, why this happens to some and not to others. Not everyone needs or wishes to take HRT. They can manage their menopause with healthy lifestyle, uh, especially if you are very good at managing your lifestyle, exercise, diet, trying to keep your symptoms low by approaching non-hormonal therapies. You don't need HRT or you have to take HRT. The question is about long-term health, longevity, HRT helping your future life. There are many other non-hormonal interventions which are probably less risky but equally good if you give time and dedication to them to keep and improve your long-term health. For that sole reason of long-term health, HRT is not something I would recommend right now. Yeah, let's just go into that a bit more. So there are people that claim, I've seen many talks and podcasts with people claiming that taking uh, hormone therapy is going to decrease dementia, heart disease, and obviously osteoporosis, there is evidence for this. But how how do you feel about um, 
hormone therapy for dementia and heart disease? Do you think women should be taking it as a preventative measure for these conditions? So the, the simple answer is no. If I break it down further, there is no doubt that hormone replacement therapy is good for bones, good for your heart if you start early, say within the age before the age of 60 or within 10 years of your menopause. We now do have evidence that it does help the heart and the bone, but you're not going to use it for that purpose on its own. If you have symptoms and you're taking HRT, then these are bonuses. These are actually the bonus benefits of that. Uh, you will get some protection from osteoporosis and also reduce your heart disease. Uh, if you look at dementia, there are observational studies which do show there may be increased risk of dementia. There are other studies which show there is no increase in risk of dementia. There are studies with particular gene populations such as the APO4 gene which show there may be benefit for estrogen. So it's a process of research. We don't have any firm conclusions whether HRT can either prevent or worsen dementia. You can cherry pick evidence to suit your cause. People who are against HRT will cherry pick observational studies and say, oh, actually, most studies give a signal here that it worsens cognitive performance. Those who are pro-HRT will cherry pick evidence and say, look at the APO4 gene and a few other animal and experimental studies. They do suggest observational data that is estrogen benefits the uh, reduction in plaques and cognitive function. That's not the way science works. Science has to give a robust answer based on randomized trials, based on long, big, large cohort studies. And unless we do them, we cannot talk about this topic. There's no consensus at all. And one shouldn't use HRT to prevent dementia. So I, I discussed this with Isaac and you've just brought it up. Are there people who really are against women taking HRT? Because I've, I've never met people. Uh, sometimes people say I'm anti-HRT. I'm not anti it. I absolutely always have said that HRT has a place for women who are having symptoms. And as you've said very clearly, for have a, have a go, see how it how it is. I always tell my friends, have a go, see see if it helps you. If it doesn't help you, let's have a little, you know, deeper dig into what might be causing your symptoms. So I know we have the we definitely have the pro HRT people who are saying HRT is preventative and should be given to everybody. And I think that's um, I think that's really worrying for many women who don't want to take it for whatever reason or who can't take it for medical reasons, they then feel that they're doing something wrong and they feel that uh, they're um, going to affect their health negatively because they're not taking it. So I think I personally think that's wrong. But at the other end, have, have, we, have you really come across people who are anti it and don't think anyone should take it? Yes. Um, um, uh, you know, uh, when I do posts on social media, and I'm active on Twitter sometimes, and I post on Instagram, um, I do receive a, a, a sort of my share of abuse uh, time and again. Uh, um, and, and, and part of that is, is that I'm trying to propagate HRT and medicalize. Uh, yes, I do offer HRT to women who come to see me in my clinic. That's my role. I'm doing a menopause clinic. Uh, but it, it's absolutely evidence-based. I don't push HRT. I say these are the benefits, these are the risks. You make a decision. I will help you with that based on the data. And we arrive at a point where you start HRT, realistic expectations, what it can do and cannot do. And over a period of time, we will know how much it can do for you and whether it's really worth continuing. Uh, but often there is a, a group that often blames you for medicalizing menopause with HRT. Uh, I think that's not fair. But of course, people have their views as long as they are expressed in a uh, in a nice way, uh, in, an, in a non-abusive way. I think all views are welcome. Uh, that debate about HRT, about menopause being medicalized will continue for decades to come. As long as it happens in a healthy way and women get the right information, it doesn't matter. And, and I totally agree. I, I think I've met women who, I know women who, it's really changed their life for the better and they feel fantastic, perfect. But I, I'm not. I'm with you and and Anise and others and Susan. We're none of the extremes. All of those clinicians do prescribe it, but they don't prescribe it for everybody. And they think that the best thing for women is if it's not working to find out. Really, that's their best clinical treatment. Find out what else is happening for them. Not just think, well, we'll put everyone on HRT and then shut the door on them. 
which leads us to a very controversial question. There's been a lot in the UK press um, about some doctors giving very high doses of HRT. So I, I've heard some women say that their initial dose was, was higher than what is recommended by the by everybody. Um, so that's that's very worrying. But then secondly, it's worrying that women were started on the on the normal dose. It wasn't having a function. So there I've heard of crazy amounts of um HRT that's being given, which Susan expressed she thought was was dangerous and we just don't know what's happening. So how do you feel about giving these off-label high doses of hormone therapy? Is that recommended? Is that safe? So uh, again, this causes anxiety for many of us who work in the field. Uh, HRT being a medication has its benefits and risk. And so Pharma companies who have devised HRT and made different preparations will often put the HRT preparation through their randomized trials to different uh, studies and then come up with the licensed dose because that's the range of dose that has been studied by that pharmaceutical company and they know what happens with it in the next 5, 10, 15 years if you use it at that particular dose. Um, and then, of course, there are independent research studies that happen on a particular HRT. Let's just take an example of a patch. Uh, you have a 25 microgram to 100 microgram range of patch, which is clinically used. And there have been studies from pharma that this is a licensed dose range that can be used for symptoms. You've got other studies over the last 20 years using these patches in different hormone-related studies. So we know what happens even if you use the uppermost licensed dose of a 100 patch over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Now, some women do not absorb hormones uh, just the same way as others. And of course, even if you use a 100 patch, they may absorb little and get effect close to a 25 or a 50 patch. That is fine. In that case, you can go up the dose because you know that although you may be using a 150 patch, for example, in the blood, when you measure that hormone, the absorption levels are close to physiological range or something like 200 or 400 picomole. That means that woman is using 150, which is getting an effect of 75 or 100. That's acceptable. That's normal variation because people absorb differently. What is concerning is if that doesn't work and if you keep increasing the dose to get higher and higher and higher blood levels, 500, 1000, 1500 picomole constantly every day, and you go up the dose not because they are not absorbing less, but you want to have higher and higher and higher levels of estrogen in your blood, that's when we go into an unknown area. We don't know what happens next. So keeping sustained high supraphysiological, very high blood levels of hormones, how do you draw a line? Where do you stop? A proportion of women come back to you after a few months or years and say, I'm really getting resistant to this i'm having symptoms despite being on such a high dose then you go higher then you go higher then you go higher so what we don't know is such unlicensed or higher doses when you're absorbing it and you're having supraphysiological blood levels where is it taking you what are the unknown long-term effects on your breast on your endometrium on other tissues of your body and you will run out of options. At, at some stage, you will get to a point you can't take no more. And it's very difficult for women then to reverse back because you have to go cold turkey. You have to stop HRT and that can bring on horrendous symptoms. Or if you try to wean down, often the lower doses don't work. And that can sometimes be very distressing. I have had a few women like that on implants who got used to the higher and higher doses and what we call as tachyphylaxis. Now, we don't know that phenomenon, how it happens with the current HRT, like the gels patches, because they've just been in use for the last few years, really, with such high doses. But if it is a phenomenon that does happen, and we need research on that, then we shouldn't be trying to get that. We should be trying to encourage longer use of the recommended doses so that women don't get used to higher and higher doses. And also, we don't expose them to unknown risk. So for people who train with me or people who hear me in seminars, I will say, try and do everything and find an HRT preparation within the licensed dose. There are so many out there. You will find one that works for your patient. Try and avoid unlicensed or high dosing. For that occasional woman who doesn't absorb, 
demonstrate with bloods that you're getting the levels within the license range by using higher than license dose. So then you're confident that you're not going too high with your blood levels. And of course, have that discussion when you use the higher dose that when you go across a certain threshold, you don't know what the effects are. Are they prepared to take the unknown risk? Document that. And only when you have that shared discussion, having explained the unknown risk, you can potentially consider an individualized treatment for that patient. But that's occasional patient. For most, you will have the normal licensed doses that will work extremely well. And as you said, it may be some other cause that's causing these symptoms and un- a different underlying condition that, that really, <clears throat> in best interest for that patient, needs to be figured out what that is. Um, can, lots of people asked after Susan's podcast, what is the standard dose that you would start someone on? So you, you mentioned estrogen, but what about progesterone? Let's just actually do estrogen again. Um, what would be the dose you'd normally start someone on for estrogen and progesterone? So start with the lowest dose. You want to be on the lowest effective dose that controls all the symptoms well. So if you're starting oral, it would be one or two milligrams of oral estrogen. If it's a patch, it's a 50 microgram patch. If it's a gel, it's one or two pumps of gel every day. If it's a spray, it's one or two sprays of the Lenzetto every day. And then you can go up to incrementally every six months. If the symptoms are not controlled, you can go up to a 100 patch, up to four pumps of gel, up to three sprays of the Lanzetto, three or four milligrams of oral. That's mainly for young women. So those are the normal licensed therapeutic uh, doses, or commonly studied doses for the last 20 years where we know exactly what the efficacy and safety is. Do you think, and I've heard friends that do this, uh, do you think that a woman should play around with her doses herself without discussing this with her no. clinician. <laughs> you got no. in there before you're very adamant about it. I've heard women say, oh, I have, I've been feeling a little bit whatever, so I've put on another patch or I've done more gel or I've done, you know. So let's make this clear about those self-prescribing. No. So again, as with any other medicine, self-prescribing can cause a lot of fluctuation in your uh, medical uh, medicine levels or hormone levels in your blood. And in fact, what we have uh, sort of gained over the years uh, through, through, through looking at women, following them, is that the more the fluctuation, the more difficulty in controlling symptoms. So for example, on a day that you don't feel well, you top up, your body gets a signal, it's now going to get a high dose every day. The next day that symptom goes a little bit better because something has changed in your life, you rested or something else has become better, and then you drop the dose. The body gets confused, it's getting a lower dose. So topping up as go, uh, as you need, can often confuse your uh, hormone uh, equilibrium more, and, and women often will find that their symptom control becomes more challenging. So I certainly would not recommend that. Thank you so much. I'm going to use that clip and send it to some of my friends. And as you said throughout, you know, they've got to think about their lifestyle and how our mood and symptoms, you know, sleep is so major. If we, I think that's really the sort of tip of of the well-being triangle. If we haven't slept, we know it's like torture. It affects our mood. It can affect our, our body temperature. It can affect so many things the next day. So think about um, that and how, how how have you slept? What else could be affecting? Is there something stressing you? And don't play around with your with your doses of your um, hormone therapy. Now, Vikram, we're going to stop probably talking about menopause. I want to ask you, you you've been a fantastic clinician that have done great research and you really want to help find answers to the many growing questions that we have in in all areas, especially menopause. So t- tell us what tell us about what do you think are your most important studies, either that you've already done, or are there some studies that you're working on now that you think are really important around menopause? Thank you. So I think I've, I've been blessed with a fantastic team, my mentors, as well as junior colleagues at UCLH. So uh, you very well know Professor Melanie Davis. She's been a rock-solid mentor for me. She's currently involved with two big trials for which we uh, help her with recruiting. Uh, So one is the POISE study, which is basically for women with premature ovarian insufficiency, comparing the contraceptive pill versus natural hormone replacement. 
Uh, it's a two-year study where we will be looking at various uh, parameters, including clinical parameters, bone and uh, heart parameters in women uh, who will be randomized to either receive the pill or receive the HRT. Because there are still questions about which is the best way of giving estrogen to these young women. Uh, so if anybody is interested in POIS, do contact us at UCLH. Uh, the other one is that's going to hopefully start recruiting end of the year is a BLUSH trial. So BLUSH is about using oxybutynin, which is a drug which was used for overactive bladder in the past. That's shown to have some impact on vasomotor symptoms. Uh, and so it's going to be one of the non-hormonal alternatives uh, for vasomotor symptoms of menopause. Again, it's a randomized trial and it's going to hopefully start end of year, early next year. So if you are keen on that, uh, do get in touch with us. Uh, and again, uh, there are many others. For example, we're trying to submit an application for funding uh, for doing uh, non-clinical, mainly statistical work around predicting cancer risk uh, for women who would like to take HRT based on all the background genetic, familial, medical uh, uh, parameters they have, but also for women with breast cancer because there is little research on the newer forms of HRTs, can we possibly offer some of those uh, newer, safer ones to maybe subgroups of patients with less estrogen receptor positive uh, status? Uh, and that's exactly a statistical piece of work for which we are applying for funding. Uh, that will be interesting because cancer still remains the biggest barrier for either prescribing HRT or women wanting to take HRT if they need it for troublesome vasomotor symptoms. And there are a few others in pipeline, including I had the, I had the pleasure of working with the King's uh, uh, Technology Innovation Group. And they've come up with a, uh, a device that you wear around your neck for hot flushes. I'm excited to see the device. They've just recently completed their, um, their sort of development of the device and want to show us. So that will be interesting. And there are a few small ones with students and fellows looking at, for example, auditing estrogen levels following breast cancer on vaginal estrogen. Uh, looking at long-term effects of testosterone. Uh, so we can't do a big trial in, in a clinical busy setting. But what I'm interested in looking at observational data within our clinic, how many women benefited from testosterone? Did they notice their changes in energy, energy mood and brain fogging? Can we give a small sort of uh, observational data there before the big RCT happens, whether it really benefits or not? Such small projects are, are all happening. Uh, all this is really meant at helping things, uh, uh, helping us to understand things better. None of us want to deny HRT to women. It's fantastic if it works, but at the same time, establishing safety, establishing some benchmarks so that we're not overshooting and overdoing it. That's really the aim of it. As a scientist, I'm obviously very biased, but just to explain to people what happens in the clinic and if we have people in the clinic not as part of a clinical study and they say, oh, this woman helped, was helped by this treatment and that woman was helped by that treatment. That's really interesting information, but it's not a robust clinical trial or scientific study. And the studies you've mentioned are the way that we need to do this. So the clinicians working with the scientists is so important to answer the many, many questions that we have and then give women the best evidence-based treatment, which is which is really where we're going. This is a hard one, but if you had and to pick one And of course, not to study... forget, Prof. Sorry, yeah, yeah, carry on. And not to forget, Prof, excited about our development of the course that you are putting together. So I guess one shouldn't forget that UCL are developing this module. And it's not for healthcare professionals, because so far we've done lots of education webinar, which are really for HCPs, for doctors, for GPs, for nurses, for pharmacists. But I think there's a reliable source that's lacking for women out there. If they Google, if they go on the internet, who do they trust and which sources do they read? I think UCL, uh, with you, Shema, and, 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 and others in your team are going to, and Rebecca, you're all going to probably provide that one reliable source. So we are looking forward to contributing to that. It's such an important thing. Thank you so much. And you, you have done fantastic work and put so much energy into educating both health professionals. You run the, the GP training day, and, and which we did one last week. And I gave one of the lectures, which I always love hearing what the GPs think. And it, it, they, yeah, they gave some, they gave some great feedback for what I said. Um, and you've done so many seminars and uh, talks to women 
to educate them. And this is the point of this podcast as well. It, it is definitely all about education. And I'm so glad you're involved and you're on our advisory committee for our national program. And I can't wait. I think it's really important. We, we are, uh, we've already had a bit of criticism. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll always have, we've, we've got to get a bit of a tough skin, but we are going to make this evidence base. We're working with the British Menopause Society, Royal College of Obs and Gynae, Wellbeing of Women and Sophia Foundation and a brilliant advisory committee. And we're very excited about a workshop next week, uh, not next week, next month. Um, and what we want to do, I keep saying this again and again, we want to listen to women and to stakeholders, men, LGBT, different cultures, neurodiverse, women with premature menopause, surgical menopause, everything. We want to listen to everybody and co-design this course with them and try and what we want to try and do is make a suite of what we call a suite of offerings to help everybody. And it's going to take time. We, we, you know, we, we will do it slowly and carefully and methodically because as I said, you and you and I and Shima and the rest of the team, we could all sit down now and not talk to anybody else and we could write a course, but that's not inclusive. And the beauty of what we're doing so great to have you on board, Vikram, is we're, we want to be fully inclusive. Listen to the target group who these courses and uh, modules are for. Make it fully accessible. We hope free or very cheap um, so that everybody everybody can learn about the menopause. And, and thank you so much for all the work you've already done in the many talks. So to finish off, um, some more fun questions. So... Um, I was just at a conference uh, in Italy, wonderful location, <laughs> um, and I, several talks before mine had mentioned that um, the patients didn't know. They didn't know about something. They didn't, And one of them actually said, why had nobody told me this before? Which is exactly why I called this podcast, Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? So I'm sure through your career, through reproduction, right through to the menopause, you've had many people say this to you why didn't I know this already so what if you had to pick one what was the main thing people have said to you over the years I think I'll probably go down the fertility path there is that a lot of women in their late 30s early 40s said why was I not told not to leave it so late uh, I think I think you've made that message very clear in some of your resources your books your posters and I think it's a real key message. Although I do a lot of menopause work and that's primarily my passion right now, the one message that always comes across in women's health in reproductive medicine is why was I not told not to leave it too late for pregnancy and childbirth? I think that will be my one message to everyone out there in their 20s and 30s if you can pass it on to them. Mine is exactly the same. And we, we, I think everyone knows about the biological clock, but I really don't think we're helped. Um, and this was one of the talks uh, in, in Italy uh, the last few days um, with more and more celebrities having children later. And then some of them, some of them proclaiming, oh, it's really easy to have children when you're older. Um, that really does not help the public. These Celebrities have often, maybe always, used very expensive fertility treatment that most people would not be able to afford. So having a child in your 40s or 50s as a woman is, is really, oh, well, over 50 is really, over 45 is a miracle. Um, but even in your late 30s, early 40s, is, is very tricky. And we, you and I both, we want people to know that. And we don't want them to miss the boat if they want to have children. So, so for sure. Um, Vikram, what motivates you? You work so hard. Here we are Saturday morning. I know you've got to take your daughter to gymnastics soon. I've got to take my son off to uni. Um, what motivates you to work so hard and relentlessly on all this work that you do? I think the satisfaction that you get when your patient comes back after three or six months and says, you've changed my life. I'm a different person now. Even if it means that it's something has not worked, but they have tried it and they've come back and said, actually, I understand the process better now. I can look after myself. I don't need you. 
that's the satisfaction you've given them evidence-based scientific care and and a part of the, the the other bit is the education is you do a session for healthcare professionals you do a session for women they come back and they they're really grateful for the time you've given that really is the bit that keeps you going there's always criticism people will take you out of context i receive my share of abuse on social media as i said but i ignore that as long as my conscience is true and i'm doing the right bit and i i know that women are being helped and they tell me i will continue Thank you. And I, I wanted to thank you for your work on social media because we do need to thank each other and help each other pick ourselves up when we get the criticism because you put so many important scientific papers out there and explain it very um, clearly to the public so that they can understand some of the important work that's being done. So you really are fantastic marriage between the clinician and the scientist and and the educator who is trying to make sure everybody else understands what we're learning along our journey as well. So thank you so much and we must keep going. <laughs> thank you, Prof. Not worry. Yes. Yeah, not worry about those trolls. Um thank so, you so much. For this question, you don't need to think about anything to do with work. People keep answering about things to do with work. So it might be work, but if you had a blank slate in front of you, what makes you happy and where is your happy place? This is so important to me at the moment. We're talking about it more and more. And at the conference I was just at, we had a fantastic session for everybody there. And we we were asked that by one of the speakers what makes us happy and where is our happy place? And I think this is so important that we need to think about that and be able to answer this question. So if you're listening and you can't think of your answer yet, keep thinking about it. But let's hear what Vikram says. What makes you happy and where is your happy place? My, my happy place will be with my family in nice Swiss cottage, away from all the work, away from internet, uh, some nice fantastic flowing river by the side of my cottage and some snow covered peaks in the in the distance that's my my happy place fantastic and and it besides being there are there any are there any other ways that you make yourself happy it's reading so i don't get a lot of time i missed my bit of reading i used to read a lot 10 years ago with all the commitments i have taken on i'm not reading as much now but i love reading non fiction uh, um, uh, but I, I've got a pile of books now, which is the to-do list, which is ever-growing. But the day I retire, and I'll retire early, I won't do a lot of work in the future. Um, and then I'll start picking up those books one by one. They're all there, sitting on the shelf. You're, you're totally right. I'm the same. But when you go to the cottage, I bet you read. Fingers crossed. Otherwise, I'll be lost in the nature. So both balance yeah. of both, I guess. My my aim whenever I go on holiday is to try and read at least three books. Um, it's the only chance I get. Um, otherwise, especially doing a podcast, if someone's written a book, I have to read their book. <laughs> um, so the very last question, uh, and you actually mentioned this slightly earlier, what advice would you give your younger self? Definitely about being more healthy. Um, I think in the process of trying to pursue a lot of things career-related, I have not concentrated on my health, uh, and and I'm trying to do better now. It's a challenge because you you've grown up with so many bad habits in a way that that are your own doing, and, and and picking them, unpicking them, and trying to actually correct them is very difficult in modern life. But I have to do the same that I advise my patients. So really trying to eat healthy, sleep well not doing mobiles at night, exercise. So that would be my key message to myself. And the second one is, is medicine worth doing as a career? Well, perhaps yes. <laughs> but sometimes I see the big fat paycheck that the IT guys get and I say, should I have gone there? And I have to strike for my pay now. And that's just a joke. Medicine is really fantastic. So whoever is thinking about doing medicine in future, yes, it's, it's, it still remains a really fantastic, satisfying career. Yeah, I'd love to have a job with a bigger salary. <laughs> I keep meeting people with huge salaries. I think, what am I doing? <laughs> but you know, the the, the trouble with um, our well-being, I know it's difficult. And the biggest thing women tell me is they don't have time. 
they don't have time to exercise. And I, I someone, uh, my dear friend, Professor, Professor Jackie Boven asked me yesterday, how do you find the time to do everything, Joyce? I don't understand. Mm. And it, and mm. I think, I think mm. the exercise gets to the bottom of the list. It really, you know, we, we all struggle with time. So I think both of us, our message to women, try and find the time, even if it's 10 minutes, pick up some weights, 10 minutes, do a bit of stretching, um, 10 minute fast walk. We all need to find the time because it's our own health and we'll feel a lot better if if we really try to balance those pillars of well-being. So Vikram, thank you very, very much on a Saturday morning. it's always a great pleasure. I can't wait for us to be developing this um, education project. It's going to, I really hope it's going to revolutionize women's health and hopefully mean less women will go to their GP because more women will manage this on their own. And the questions they have often for their GP, um, they would already know. So I'm not, they obviously need to go to their GP That's for their hormone therapy. But yeah, I think a lot of questions that they have and they'll be well prepared, for it. well prepared for that interview. Great. Perfect. So thanks very much. Enjoy your Saturday. And I look forward to hearing the comments. I'm sure there'll be, we'll, we'll get a bit of uh, negative comments from some people. But thank you so much, Victor. And keep up your excellent, excellent thank you, research. My honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.